Let me ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 in just a few moments. I'm going to be reading Mark's account of what Blake read to us from Luke's account. Mark chapter 5. Have you ever found yourself in such a desperate condition or situation that sooner or later you realize your only hope was God. And you felt, in a sense, that your despair drove you to God. Maybe with a sense of shame. Why did it take me so long to turn to my one and only hope? And yet, perhaps you took some comfort in the fact that you did turn to Him because deep down in your soul, you believed, you believed that He was your only hope. Were you driven to God by despair or were you drawn to Him by faith? The answer is both. This morning it will be our privilege to look at two individuals recorded in this fifth chapter of Mark who also were driven by despair and yet drawn by faith. Now I want to just remind you of the overarching theme of the Gospel of Mark, Mark's account of the good news concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came on the scene, we were told in chapter 1 and verse 15 that he basically said to all who listen to him, the kingdom has arrived and I am the king. In essence, he said to his hearers, listen to me, because it is with authority that I teach, not like the scribes. It is as if he said, watch what I do. Because I'm going to demonstrate my sovereignty over nature, over forgiveness, over demons, disease, and death. And someday, I will perform the ultimate work upon which the kingdom rests. I will take my sinless life to a cross and there become a curse bearer and I will redeem my people. And so I want to remind us again this morning of the big picture which lies behind what we're going to be looking at together in this fifth chapter. What is going on behind the healing of these two people which Blake read to us about in Luke chapter 8? What is behind it? What is the big picture? Well, I've already hinted at it. The big picture is this. The kingdom of God is being established. The kingdom of our Savior is being set up. He begins to bind Satan. He begins to form a new Israel. He chooses a new twelve. Twelve apostles. He inaugurates a new covenant. He starts to undo the damage done by the first Adam. And in effect, he begins to reverse the effects of the fall. 
He performs miracles, and these miracles were designed by him to demonstrate at least two things. First of all, that he was indeed the promised Messiah, because the prophecy said that the coming Messiah would give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and so forth. And so he was demonstrating, I am that prophesied Messiah. But he was also demonstrating that he was the Son of God and that he was the Redeemer. Even though he had not yet done the work of redemption, he was doing things that pointed to the redemption that he was going to accomplish. Through his physical healings, he was pointing to the reversal of disease and death. And in that sense, those healings, two of which we will look at today, were emblematic. That is to say, they were pictures of something to come. They were parabolic. That is to say, they were stories, if you watch them, which pictured what He was going to do for us. They were didactic, which simply means they were teaching. When He did miracles, He wasn't just proving. He was teaching for those who had eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand. And in a sense, those healings, those miracles were prophetic because they pictured the ultimate healing that was going to come. You see, folks, soul death was the result of our first parent's sin. We died in them and with them. Our souls died, not in the sense that they went out of existence, but in the sense that they were no longer capable of having communion with God. And because we died in our souls, it was only right that our physical lives would picture what happened to our souls. And we did begin to die physically. And so, not surprisingly, we as human beings began to lose our sight. And there was such a thing as a blind man and a blind woman and a blind child. And we began to lose our hearing and there were people who were deaf. And we began to lose our speaking capacity and there were people who were mute. And we began to lose our ability to get around and to move and have mobility. And so there were people with paralysis. And we became morally unclean. And so there were people with leprosy. And ultimately, we literally died. And so, the Lord Jesus, in reversing these conditions through His healings, was pointing to what he was going to do ultimately as the king of the kingdom and as the redeemer of the people. Every reversal was a picture of his ultimate restoration of humanity. So these two miracles which we're going to look at this morning show us again. And I say again because they are miracle number eight and nine in this short gospel already. They show us again that the kingdom is being established. Christ is the king. And his miracles were attesting his sovereignty. Over what? I've said it once, I'll say it again. Over truth. Over forgiveness. Over nature. Over demons. Over disease. Over death. Only last day... Last Lord's Day morning, or Sunday, yes, last Lord's Day morning, we were 
observing this. Jonathan took us through the end of chapter 4, where Jesus demonstrated His sovereignty over nature by standing up in that small boat and just commanding the winds and the waves to be still. Only last day, Lord's Day's morning, we saw Him go across the sea to that ominous place where demon-possessed people found habitat. And He confronted a legion of demons who were fearful of Him and who quickly submitted to His authority, who prayed to Him and had their prayers answered. And now in this same fifth chapter, we see two more healings. And they show us that the kingdom of God has come. That's the big picture. That is the big picture. These are not just little stories that are wonderfully true and encouraging, and they are that for sure, but they are evidences. They are exhibit A, B, C, D, E, F, and down through the alphabet, again and again and again, of the reality that the kingdom has come. The king is on the scene, and he's going to reverse all the effects of the fall. How encouraging to remember the, the hymn that we love to sing at Christmas. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Two people were experiencing the curse in the chapter that we look at today. So, that's the big picture. And what I want to do now is sort of what Jonathan did last week. I want to turn quickly to the spiritual lessons that can be learned from the two miracles that we're going to read about again. There are lessons. I said, didn't I, just a moment ago, that the parables or the miracles were parabolic. That is, they teach something. They're didactic. They have instruction. We're meant to learn more than just the fact that, yes, He is the Christ, isn't He? Yes, the kingdom is arriving. We're to learn much more. And so I want to direct our attention. So I think it's time then for us to read Mark's account of these two miracles that the Lord Jesus performed. On these two desperate individuals. Let's notice then, beginning with verse 21. <clears throat> and when Jesus had crossed again, you remember? Last Lord's Day morning, we saw him on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Gadarenes. Now he's coming back to the west side. He's in the boat. And when he arrives, probably at Capernaum, we find that a great crowd was gathered about him. Luke tells us that they were already waiting. It's not like they said, hey, the word is out. Jesus is back. Let's, get, let's go see him. No, they were waiting. They were hoping. They were expecting him to come back. Even though it was either early in the morning or very late at night, probably early in the morning, they were waiting for him beside the sea. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, 
he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now I just want to pause long enough to ask you to think about how amazing this is. Who was this man? What was his job? He was a ruler of the synagogue. Have we seen anything like this yet? No. What we've seen in these few chapters is opposition from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians. The rulers of the synagogue did not like Jesus. This is a unique situation. And it helps make the point of the message, namely, that God often uses despair to drive us to Christ. And yet this man was characterized by more than just despair. Why would he come to Jesus? Well, maybe he was the ruler of the very synagogue that Jesus was in in the earlier part of this gospel when a demon-possessed man came. I don't know how many synagogues there were in Capernaum at this time. But one thing is for sure, this man had heard and perhaps even personally witnessed the miraculous power of Jesus Christ and being in a case of desperation. He came to Jesus. He was his only hope. And you can imagine, can you not, the love of a father for a 12-year-old daughter. We're told again in Luke's account that she was his only daughter. Can you imagine the desperation of this man? I just want you to think as parents, those of you who are parents, it doesn't really make much difference how old your children are. What if before this day was over, for one reason or another, your daughter or son was literally at the point of death down there at the hospital? How do you think you would feel? How desperate would you be? I remember when um, a singer of a couple of decades ago, Don Francisco, wrote a song which he was accustomed to do that was very biblical about this girl. And at that time, it was on those big records. <laughs> and I remember on several occasions, turning the lights off in our den room and putting that song on and lying down on the floor on my back and trying to think, what if it was Rebecca? And every time I listened to it, I wept. And I, I could imagine the joy that came to this 12-year-old girl's parents when Jesus, in fact, raised her from the dead. But I'm just asking you to think about who this man was. He was a ruler of a synagogue. And he was desperate. And Jesus says, I'll come with you. Let's go. Now, interestingly, and this is something Mark does, he sometimes weaves a story within a story, but he had to weave the story within the story because on his way, 
to the house of Jairus, another desperate person comes to him. And let's read about it. We find it in verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. We don't know the nature of this hemorrhage. It was probably some kind of a uterine disease, sickness. Maybe she had a form of endometriosis. It's not hard to imagine. And we go on to read that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. This is a poor woman. This isn't only a sick woman. This is a poor woman. In fact, she's getting worse and worse, according to the last part of verse 26. She wasn't getting better. She wasn't staying the same. She was getting worse. I think it would be fair to say she, she was going to die eventually from this. Really desperate situation. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And I'm sure that these reports were somehow used to create faith in her heart. And there's a little lesson there. As people hear the reports about Jesus from us, God may use those reports to give people hope and perhaps the beginnings of faith, especially if they hear truth about Jesus based upon His Word. And so, having heard about Jesus, she comes up behind Him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, and we're told uh, in Luke's account that she said this within herself. Actually, I think it's Matthew who says, she said, she doesn't say this out loud. She's talking to herself. She says, if I, if I just touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, having touched his garment, we're to understand, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself, he is the divine Son of God, he does have omniscience. He knows when faith takes hold of him by anyone. Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, she appropriated that divine power by touching him with a hand of faith. Power did go out from him, but... It didn't make him less powerful. That's an amazing thing, too. It's kind of like, how does the sun keep shining and shining and shining and burning up trillions of tons of energy every second and still produce the same? And we still have record days of temperature breaking. There's an infinite source in this man. But he feels, he feels his power go out. And he turns about immediately in the crowd and he says, Who touched my garments? Now, I, I want to say that, I want to say that properly. He didn't say, Who touched my garments? He said, Who touched my garments? Now, he knew who touched his garments. But he wanted the person who touched his garments to fess up. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd passing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Really not a very respectful, believing kind of comment on the part of his disciples. They had seen enough of their Savior by now to be more humble than that, and to be more hopeful than that, and to say, I wonder what this is about. But they still didn't get it. 
It's really quite sad. The demons get it. Jonathan pointed that out last week. And sick people get it. The disciples haven't gotten it yet. And he didn't rebuke his disciples. He just, verse 32, looked around, continued to look around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, and Luke tells us that knowing that she could no longer remain hidden, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And she told him the whole truth. And that probably means that she told him, Jesus, I've had this terrible disease. I've been hemorrhaging for 12 years. I've spent everything I have. I've gone to every doctor that I could see. And I've endured a lot of painful therapies. And I'm utterly broken. I have no money. I'm getting worse. I had to come to you. I'm desperate. You're my only hope. And he said to her, Daughter. Oh, that's a sweet word. Daughter. She may have been a little older than him. She wasn't a little girl. He says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Which simply means, your faith, which led you to get in touch with me, even though your faith was weak and deficient in several regards. There was a superstitious element in your faith. I'm not saying he said this. I'm pointing this out to you. Later, she must have realized this and thought about it. Sort of a magic element to it. I just, If I can just touch his clothing. No, it's not about his clothing, ma'am. It's about him. And there was not only some ignorance in her faith, there was some selfishness in her faith because we are led to believe very clearly that as soon as she felt well, she was out of there. She was leaving. She didn't want to be detected. She didn't want to talk to him. And one would think that realizing immediately that she had been suddenly and completely healed of this disease, that she would have cried out and said, Master, you just healed me. I want to praise you. I want to thank you. He's the Savior. You would think that she would... No, she had gotten what she wanted and came for, and she was about to leave. And she would have left if Jesus hadn't said, Who touched me? There was something very deficient. There was some unbelief mixed with her faith, like there is with our faith. And later, I'm going to comfort you in that regard concerning the tenderness and the patience and the kindness of our Savior toward us. But he does commend her for her faith. And lest I forget to make this point, I'm going to say it right now. He commends her for her faith because faith commends him. He honors her for her faith because her faith honored him. And the Lord Jesus is never more honored than, we, than when we trust him. When we believe upon Him, when we call upon Him, when we look to Him, when we cast ourselves upon Him. And so He was pleased with her faith. And He commends her faith. And He tells her that it was instrumental in her healing. And then He says these sweet words to her, Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
That is, remain well and healed. Now, I want to point out something about her as I did about Jairus. Do you realize what it was like in those days, given the Levitical law, for a woman to have a problem, a health problem that, that, in, that was characterized by blood? When a woman was have, going through her menstrual period, if anyone touched the woman, including her husband, he was unclean for seven days. This woman, in many regards, was like a leper. She wasn't allowed to touch anybody. No one was allowed to touch her, and if they did, they had to go through the ritual of cleansing. But you see, it shows us again how desperate she was. She made her way through the crowd, touching undoubtedly many people. And maybe she even wondered, will I make him unclean? But maybe her faith was strong enough to say, no, this one who can heal me could not be made unclean by me touching him. I'm going to touch, and I'm only going to touch his garment. So there's a mixture here. There's a mixture of faith. There's a mixture of fear. There's a mixture of unbelief. But our tender, loving, gracious, compassionate, kind, omnipotent, omniscient, healing Savior not only lets that virtue and power go out of him into her body, but doesn't let her get away and confirms her faith and sends her away in peace. That's, that's miracle number one. Miracle number two was introduced as we started reading it about Jairus coming. But now think about Jairus for a minute. You're Jairus, or you're Jairus' wife. And you know that time is of the essence. Our daughter is dying. Jesus, can we hurry up and get there? Do you have to do this now? She's been living with this for 12 years. Can we go take care of my daughter and come back and take care of this woman who's not going to die before the day's over? Maybe my daughter's already dead. Surely he was more fearful. And then to add insult to injury, to really make the situation despairing, look what happens in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue immediately, immediately, word of comfort, word of encouragement, kindness, sympathetic priest here. He knows what's going on in this man's soul. And Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. And again, Luke's account tells us that he actually added these words, she will be made well. Don't let go. And in the original language, really what uh, he is saying to him, keep on believing. You've been believing. That's why you came. Your faith isn't perfect either. If it were perfect, you would have said to me, Master, you don't need to come to my house. You would have been like the centurion and said, I have people who are under my authority. I know about speaking word. All you have to do is speak a word. You don't have to touch her with her hands. You can speak the word and she'll be well. Was his faith that strong? No. But it was strong enough to know in his desperate situation that he needed Jesus Christ. And he believed that Christ could solve his daughter's sickness and make her well. And so he's probably very despairing, but Jesus gives him an encouraging word. 
And then we're told in verse 37, he, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly, because, of course, the mourners had already arrived on the scene. It was the custom to hire mourners to come and to weep and to wail and to play music, sad music. And when he had entered, entered the house, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. Who was with him? Peter, James, and John. There are, there are three times in the Bible that Peter, James, and John were with Jesus Christ in a very intimate situation, and only them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, here, and on the Mount of Transfiguration. So you can, you can count it. You can total it up, can't you? Peter, James, and John, Jesus, mom and dad, and the daughter. Seven people were in that room. He kicks everyone else. Literally, literally, he kicks them out. Ek, balo, I think is the word. They're, they're kicked out. I, I don't mean that Jesus was rude, but he, there was a righteous indignation. There was unbelief. This was going to be a sacred moment. This is very precious. This is for mom and dad. This is for my three close disciples. You're out of here. You're mocking me. And you don't have the right and the honor to see what's going to happen. And so he's in there. And what happens? Verse 31. And this is a tender scene, isn't it? Taking her by the hand, he says to her, Talitha Kumi. That's Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately, probably mom and dad especially, but surely the Peter, James, and John, they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Um, he healed her so well that she had an appetite. She was ready to eat. She just needed to be strengthened. And now she should sustain her life by normal means. And I'm not going to talk about, again, this strange command not to tell anyone. I think, I'll just say this, I think the main reason is that Jesus was drawing huge crowds who were primarily interested in his miracle working power and they wanted to get in on it. And they weren't primarily listening to him preach the gospel and he was he was, in a sense, working for what we would call crowd control. And yet, can you imagine this command being kept? There were the people who were mocking and laughing eventually saw this little girl. And they're the ones who said, she's dead. Luke tells us, they said, she's dead. They totally believe she's dead. That's part of the reason Jesus waited. It's not the first time he waited to let someone die, is it? He let that happen to Lazarus. He's going to show his power. He's going to declare that his kingdom. He's going to show that he's the king. And I'm sure that the word got out far and wide. Now that's what happened. Now what I want to do is I want to just jump very, very quickly into the lessons. And I think we can do this in some brevity. So what a difference between these two individuals. Can we just step back and look at both of them for a minute? One was a woman, one was a man. One was what you'd call an untouchable, one was highly esteemed. One came secretly to sort of steal a blessing from Christ. The other one came very openly. One came and asked for something for herself. The other came and asked something for his 
daughter. One never said a word. The other one publicly implored Jesus. One was immediately healed. The other one's hope was dashed. One was healed publicly. The other one was healed rather rather privately. One was very poor. The other was well-to-do. But both of these desperate individuals pursued Christ because they were desperate and they believed he was their only possible hope. Now, what are the lessons? Well, I want to draw some lessons, first of all, from the woman. Just three. The first thing I want to point out to you is that many people touched Christ on that day, but only one really touched him. That is, with the hand of faith. Does that make sense to you? The disciples said, Jesus, why are you asking who touched me? All kinds of people are touching you. He says, not in the way that I was touched. But they were very close to Christ. They had a proximity to Him. They probably were, in a sense, touching Him. But they weren't touching Him in that unique and special way. And my point is, dear people, you can come into very close proximity with the Lord Jesus, and in a sense, you can touch Him. You can touch Him at Heritage Baptist Church. You can touch Him in your adult Sunday school class. You can touch Him at the Lord's table. But if you don't have real, genuine faith, your touch is not a touch of faith. Even as we heard a few weeks ago, you can hear and not hear. I submit to you, you can touch and not touch. And I ask you this morning, have you touched Jesus with the hand of faith? Could He say, who touched me with that hand of real faith? So don't take comfort in the fact that you're near Christ or that you have heard Him teach in your streets, as He says in another place. St. Augustine put it like this, Multitudes still come similarly close to Christ in the means of grace, but all to no purpose, being only sucked into the crowd. Point number two, our healing, and now you can see how how I'm spiritualizing, When we come to Christ, we experience a spiritual healing. Our healing needs to be told publicly. Why? Have you ever wondered before, why did Jesus not just let her go? Why did he say, who touched me? I think there are at least two reasons. First of all, because he wanted his glory to be seen. He wanted this to be known. He was proving that he was the Messiah. He was proving that the kingdom had come. And none of the people around there in that throng would have known what happened if Jesus didn't stop her. But when he stopped her and she had to fess up and tell everything, people went home telling the story about her and telling the story about him. This was in part for Christ's glory, but it was also in part for her assurance. And I think I made that point just a little bit before. She needed to be spoken a word of peace. And she needed to know that she couldn't just get that miracle of healing and go away unassured and uncomforted and not giving glory to Christ. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to be her and not to have been stopped and to go home? And then eventually this man who healed you dies on a cross and you would wish that you had talked to Him and that you had thanked Him and that you had publicly declared His glory in that situation. He was being very kind to her. He was especially 
confirming her faith and giving her assurance. <clears throat> and I want to say to you, dear people, that sometimes a public confession of faith is very reassuring. In part, that's what, the, that's what baptism is about. In part. I'm not saying that you don't have assurance before you're baptized. You better have some assurance. But I am saying that when you enter into the waters of baptism to publicly confess, to confess your faith, there's something assuring about it. There's something settling about it. There's something confirming about it. You have made a stand. You have publicly identified with Jesus Christ. And that's good for your soul. And it was good for this woman's soul. And it was good for her here that she had a reason to go in peace. And I just want to remind us that sometimes we're primarily interested in the cure. And that's understandable. But once we've been cured, we need to become primarily interested in the physician. And she met the physician when he talked to her. The third thing I would say about her faith is, is this. A simple touch of faith, even if it be a weak and somewhat ignorant faith, is all it takes to be healed by Christ. It's all it takes. I've already pointed out that her faith was imperfect. So was Jairus' faith. But the slightest true faith saves and completely saves. Though her faith was ignorant, though it was selfish, though it was mixed with unbelief, our faith too is often ignorant and selfish and mixed with unbelief. But I want to assure... Every one of us who are trusting in Christ, no matter how weak and deficient and anemic our faith is, and we're not happy about that, and we want to do something about it, but don't conclude that because your faith is weak and mixed with unbelief, um, you are not saved. No, you are saved. And this woman's faith was so weak that it was strong enough to get her to the Savior. And I want you to be encouraged with that. Now, what about Jairus? Three things as well. First of all, in our times of greatest fear and sorrow, we must hear our Savior say, Do not fear. Keep on believing. Don't fear. Now, now I'm literally saying this. When we are in deep trouble and despair, not only should we come to Christ, not only should we be driven by the despair, but we should be drawn by faith. And that faith should enable us to hear Him say, Don't fear. Keep on believing. Trust me. I'm glad that we sang songs this morning that emphasize the role and the place of faith and trusting God in the dark places. We need to hear Him say that to us by faith. And secondly, let us remember that God is never nervous or fearful because of circumstances that are unfolding. You say, well, that's, that's pretty obvious. But it's not so obvious to us in our moment of crisis. And we need to stop and say, are you nervous, God? I am. Why aren't you nervous? What if, what if Jairus had said to Jesus, Jesus, I am very, very nervous. Well, he didn't have to say it because Jesus knew it. That's why Jesus anticipated and preempted it. And he said, don't fear. Keep on believing. But Jesus, they just told me she's dead. Let me say it again. Don't fear. Keep on believing. 
she shall be made well. What if we knew what was happening before she died and she was only minutes away from death? Would we have said, Jesus, you've got to get there right now? Well, I think if we said that and we were true believers, Jesus perhaps would say to us, um, could I tell you something about omnipotence? Could I explain to you what omnipotence is? Omnipotence is the power to do anything you want. That means that if she's dead, it's okay. In fact, when we get near her, I'm going to tell people she's just sleeping. Because for me, death is like sleep, because it's as easy for me to awaken a dead person as it is for you to awaken someone who's alive. All I have to do is send power into her soul and into her body. Omnipotence is never, never nervous. Omnipotence is never anxious. And when we trust God in our most fearful moments, that's when we need to realize that God doesn't have to be in a hurry to solve this problem. And He may not solve it the way I want it to be solved anyway, because not only is He omnipotent, He's omniscient. And boys and girls, those are just two big words. It means He's all-powerful and He's all-knowing. And He may know why He shouldn't do what we want Him to do. My duty is to trust Him, to believe Him, and to find comfort in my soul based upon who He is. And so Jesus could take all the time He wanted to take because He knew what He was going to do. And He knew it wouldn't be any harder than healing a woman with a hemorrhage. And finally, I want to say this. If our Savior was so tender toward this fearful and saddened Father, we may rest well assured that he who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, namely our great high priest, who is described as a sympathetic Savior. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but who was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And when we are fearful, and when we are nervous, and when we are anxious, and when we are depressed, and when we are sad, we may go to Him and say, Jesus, You know how I'm feeling right now. Would You please comfort my soul? Would You speak those words to me in my soul? Let me hear You say, Do not fear. Keep on believing. All will be well. Jesus, please say that to me. And we can be absolutely certain that he will give us that strength the very moment we need it. What a tender Savior. What a compassionate Savior. I want to conclude with a quote from an old writer. But before I do, I want you to look at your bulletin one more time. I thank Duane already for this. If you have a bulletin, will you, will you look at this woman? It's probably not, not a far-removed image of what actually happened. Look at her. You know who she is? She's you. She's you. Although I could also say, who are you? Are you her, or are you the little girl, or are you Jairus? And you know what you have to say? I'm the woman with the issue of blood. I'm the little girl who died. I am the anxious father. 
Can you imagine that woman sneaking up behind Jesus and just saying, this man is so powerful, all I have to do is touch his garments. And he won't rebuke you. He didn't rebuke her. He was very kind to her. And I want to say to all of us, saved and unsaved, believers and unbelievers, this is what we need to do in our moments of despair, when we feel driven to God and would rather be drawn by faith than driven by despair. When we come to God, whether we're saved or unsaved, we need to take comfort and encouragement from this. And this is the quote. Alexander McLaren, Christ is, as most of us, I suppose, believe, Lord of all creatures, administering the affairs of the universe. The steps of His throne and the precincts of His court are thronged with dependents whose eyes wait upon Him and who are fed from His stores. And yet, yet, my poor voice may steal through that chorus shout of petition and praise and his ear will detect its lowest note and will separate the thin stream of my prayer from the great sea of supplication which rolls to his seat and will answer me. My hand uplifted among the millions of empty and imploring palms that are raised towards the heavens, will receive into its clasping fingers the special blessing for my special needs. Again, she had been selfish in her faith, had not cared for anyone close, for any close personal relation with him, and so she was taught that he was in all his gifts. He was in all his gifts, and that he was more than all his gifts. He compels her to come to his feet that she may learn his heart and may carry away a blessing, not stolen, but bestowed. The encouragement is this, dear friends our Savior will take as precious in his sight the poorest weakest, most mixed with unbelief faith that anyone could ever have, if there is in that faith the essence of true faith. And He will not turn you away. And He will bless you. And He will heal you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for <clears throat> this passage. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for healing this woman that we will someday meet and talk to. Thank you for raising this little girl, which we assume we will also meet, who very likely came to know and love and trust you. Thank you that someday we will meet Jairus and talk to him about what it was like. But Lord, what we need most is the faith that you gave them to call upon you in our hour of desperation. May we not be just driven by despair, but may we be drawn by faith. Lord, may today be the day that some come to you for the first time for the healing of their souls. And may they just, with a finger, 
touch you truly, believing upon you as the only one who can pay for their sins and make them righteous and heal them today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.